All right, guys. Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. This is editing Zach and editing Landon, meaning that we are in the editing process of this podcast, and we have more information to give you that we weren't able to give you while we were recording. I almost wonder if I should say the same joke again about adding a prefix to my name, but I figured no. No, no. Well, this is our second attempt. Are <laughs> we, we going to have to record this re- pre-recording again? No, no, no. No, okay. No. So, Zach. They can get into the sausage. Tell us about this podcast episode. So, uh, we were fortunate a couple weeks ago to watch the film Mending the Line, and then we were able to speak with the director. Um, you guys are going to hear that interview uh, and that conversation in a couple minutes. But the movie is about a, um, a Afghanistan veteran mm-hmm. who... Uh, experiences some trauma when he is over there. So when he comes back, he is sent to Montana to uh, to a retreat to kind of it's like a rehab center to the VA. Yes, in to the VA. Yes, thank you. Um, as a to rehab from his time, and while he's there, he discovers uh, fly fishing as a passion. He also meets other veterans. Um, who have gone through similar things in their past. And so it was just, I don't know, it's really There's awesome. also another character that is dealing with her own trauma. Mm-hmm. And so even if you don't have relation to the military or anything like that, um, it's it just, honestly, it's a feel-good story. It's um, about dealing with trauma and pain and friendship and fly fishing. And uh, the movie is going to release in theaters June the 9th. Yes, which is next Friday. Next Friday. And it is a limited release. The tickets are not available yet because we just checked. But you can purchase them, I believe, a week out from time. So check your local theater and see if it's showing near you. The more people that go and watch this film, the more likely they are to make another fly fishing film in the future. Um, this and is we the definitely f- recommend going to see it because it is it is a good film. Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really good movie. You will enjoy your time um, there. I've been reading and watching some of the reviews come across and some of the more one of the most prominent reviewers on uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, said it was the best movie of the year and uh, um, it's getting it's getting really good reviews across the board so uh, we hope you guys enjoy this episode with Joshua Caldwell on the film Mending the Line. You've got a passion for the outdoors, a desire to feel the warm sun on your face, the sound of your fly line whipping through the air, the pop of the water as the fish inhales the fly you just found in the floorboard of your truck. You need to feel the cool waters on your feet, the crisp north breeze of a November morning, the sound of a turkey gobble, the December rut, the chills of an elk bugle in September. It's the longing passion to chase your obsession. This is what we share. This is what we preach. Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. All right, guys. We have a great episode for y'all today. Sitting with me at the table is Zach A. And uh, on the call with us right now is Joshua Caldwell. He is the director of a soon-to-be-released fly fishing film called Mending the Line. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we are excited. We just watched the film, and we're really excited to tell our listeners and talk to you about it. Uh, I have a thousand questions running through my head, and I'm sure Zach was taking notes the whole time. (laughs) So uh, uh, let's dive into it. I think let's start with this because we recently had Steve on the podcast, Steve 
Ramirez on the podcast to talk about uh, his latest book that he released. And our connection is through Steve. We're good friends with Steve. You know Steve. I think he said he went to the premiere of this. Yes. Okay. Okay. Which yeah, is, he did. Which is awesome. Um, and uh, let, let's talk about uh, Steve because I know all of our listeners know who Steve is and his book, Casting Forward. What? How did you find out about Steve and how did you get to know him? So let me let me just intro the yeah. movie. Yeah, right? absolutely. I'll just, I'll just absolutely. say what it's about. So, so mending a line. It's a fictional narrative, right? You know, so many fly fishing movies out there that are made, they're all kind of documentary or something like that. But this is like a a narrative film. It's the story of a marine who is wounded in Afghanistan, and he is sent to a VA clinic in Montana, where he meets a uh, a Vietnam vet who teaches him how to fly fish as a way of dealing with his trauma. And uh, the film stars Sinqua Walls, Brian Cox, Wes Studi, Patricia Heaton, Perry Matfeld. Um, and it's a, a really wonderful story about sort of hope and resilience and overcoming trauma and the power of, you know, as I like to say, to quote John uh, Girak, like, you know, standing in a water, waving a stick, standing in, ri- in a river, waving a stick, um, you know, and how, how transformative that can be for the people that are have been so impacted by traumatic experience and are now finding peace on the water. So we're excited to now be bringing it to an audience. I mean, I've been working on this for two years now and uh, no more than that, three years and uh, we're excited to get it out. So happy to talk to you about it. Um, Yeah. The Steve, the Steve connection is funny because it basically was super, super random. I mean, I got on board this film and um, I'm a fly fisherman too, which is mainly why I wanted to, to make it, but I was not, I didn't write it. I didn't come up with the idea. This was just, I mean, that is its own story, how I got involved, but in terms of how we got connected to Steve, so I um, had basically gotten involved in this movie, and I was telling my parents about it, and my parents um, had connected with a guide, and I, I'm going to forget her name, but a guide in um, Arizona, um, and they went up to try fly fishing for the first time. And I believe that she, um, this guide, was good friends with Steve. And I think she mentioned, oh, my, my friend's a fly fisherman, and he's a former Marine, and he wrote this book. And my mom was like, oh, my son just is he's going to be directing a movie about fly fishing and, and Marines. And, you know, so my mom bought the book and sent it to me. And this was Casting Forward, right, mm. Steve's first book. And I started reading it. And I just was so taken with Steve's use of language and the way he described not only what was around him, but sort of the inner process that he was going through in these various essays, right? And even though it was very specifically about the Texas Hill Country, I found that so much of it spoke to sort of the universal truth and the universal nature of, of fly fishing. And um, I just really loved it. So I took the the quote i took one of the quotes which i believe is the first one that appears in the film and i added that to the title page of the script um because i really love i love finding quotes that speak to the theme of the movie you know and and having that in there so that the crew can see it and the cast can see it and it just really cements this is what the movie's about and um and then later, it was not until we were, I think, even, like into pre-production. Um, the sections in the movie where we used Steve's book, those sections were originally other literary references. I think it was um, 
uh, Hemingway and um, and was it, is it Robert Travers? Uh, the sort of why I fish um, quote. Anyway, I'm not sure if that's the author's name, yeah. but but it's like I fish because of this. I fish because of this. And it was just like we had sort of that had been put in there. And then it was very clear to us we were not going to get Hemingway's estate's approval to use <laughs> use uh, that stuff. And neither were gotcha. we going to get the other one. And we were searching for um, some kind of passage from a book specific to fly fishing that we could get permission for, right? So Stephen Camilio, who's the writer of Mending the Line, who wrote the script, he had a connection at, I believe it's Stackpole, right? They yep. published, yeah. He had it, he knew it. No, no, I think no, Lions age. Press, I'm sorry. Lions Press, that's Lions right. Press. Lions Press. So he knew, he had a contact over at Lions Press. And he connected with them, and basically the guy came back and said, hey, listen, like, Steve was kind of like, well, you know, Josh really likes this one book, and, and I know you guys rep, and, and he was like, listen, if we could probably get you in touch with Steve Ramirez if you're interested in using any of the passages from his book. And I said, yes, like, absolutely. Like, I already know the two I would use. And um, that would be great. So we actually then got on the phone with Steve. I remember exactly where I was sitting um, at one of the locations and we talked with him and we just said, listen, like, you know, one, I told him the story of how I got the book in my hands and how drawn to it I was and how it resonated with me. And, and I just said, listen, we'd like to use, you know, some of these passages in this film and we'd like your permission to do it. And, you know, we'll send you the script, take a look at it, like, you know, make sure you feel good about it. But this is the story, right? And I think, you know, if you met Steve, you know how, like, you know, the, 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 the response, he was so touched. And, you know, I think he wanted to make sure that it wasn't being used in a, you know, weird way or like, you know, a way that was inappropriate. And I'm like, well, it's a movie about fly fishing. I don't know how real and appropriate we can get. But, you know, listen, this... And and the fact that, you know, Steve was a Marine and, and he's experienced all this kind of stuff, it just felt right, you know. Right. And Steve Steve took a chance on us and allowed us to use the the two separate pieces in the film. And they're kind of collected from various bits and put together into one whole piece. Um, and, you know, and now he's become a friend. Um, we fished together. He came up to Woodstock to see the premiere of the film. Um, and he's been a, a very important part of um, – our work uh, now that the movie's done of getting the word out, you know, I mean, obviously Steve's a name in and of himself. And so, you know, having him sort of, um, you know, authenticate the book to other people, especially in the fly fishing community, I think is, goes a long way. Um, and, uh, you know, and it just fits within the film. I mean, it's such, it's such beautiful writing that, that it totally works with the emotionality of what's going on in each of those scenes. And I mean, I, every time I see Perry reading that second passage towards the end, I, I well up, you know, it's hard not to, um, the note about the fish make the, make a new home wherever the river takes them. I mean, it, it gets you. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's really how Steve and I connected. I mean, it was just really just, it just was one of those things that worked out. Yeah. Well, and there's not a better guy that that could have happened to and that you guys could be using his book in the movie. Steve is just one of those guys that deserves the world, and we're, well, I was pumped for him yeah. when I saw the book in the movie, and it's just really cool. Well, yeah, and I mean, a lot of, like, listen, I'm a huge fan of John Gerach and Gerach, and, like, you know, I love all that writing, but, you know, often 
there's a real practicality to the way that a lot of writers approach fly fishing and Steve approaches it sort of in, in a spiritual way. Right. And, and that's what really allowed us to, that's what made it work in the film. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's existing on a higher plane um, in terms of the language, you know, and the, and the sort of perspective that he's taking on it, taken on it. Um, that sort of, um, it, it elevates it beyond just writing about a sport, so to speak. Let's uh, let's talk about like the very very beginning of this movie. So walk us through the process, and we're maybe a little more nerdy into the whole film process than our listeners might be. But I'm really curious. Um, walk us through like the be- very very beginning stages and kind of like how this movie got turned into a film, basically. Yeah, so I'm going to paraphrase sort of what I know about Steve Camilio's side of it because he was involved way before I was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came up with the idea. But basically, uh, Stephen um, was a – and I know there's Steve Ramirez, Stephen Camilio. Maybe I'll call him by last names. But Camilio basically, um, he was a right. He's a magazine was a magazine writer for a long time and a fly fisherman. And he um, basically – his father um, was a Vietnam veteran. And he passed away due to Agent Orange exposure, um, mm. kind of in the 2000s. I forget the exact date. And I think it's after that, you know, Steve moved to Montana, um, and he was sort of using fly fishing as a way of processing his grief. And he started writing this story um, that eventually became Ending the Line, the story of a, a wounded uh, veteran who finds, you know, peace through fly fishing. And he was doing this before he ever, he, he wrote the story before he ever knew about any of the actual organizations that were doing this. Like he wasn't even fully aware this was a thing um, that's being done across the country. And, you know, so he just wrote this, this really beautiful story. And, um, and then he proceeded to, again, details are wonky, but, but he, he reached out to a, somebody he knew, I think through Villanova um, named Kelly McKendry, who is a producer. And he said, I've got this script. What do you think of it? And she loved it. And I mean, you know, from when he wrote it, I think it had been, you know, almost gosh, I mean, seven, eight years, I think before we actually made it. So it had been a while. Um, And, you know, Kelly read it, really loved it. Um, She brought on another producer who she thought could be help of uh, Scott McLeod. And together, basically, they started looking at how do we get this thing made, right? And Steve had, meanwhile, reached out to, he, I think he called every single person on the Museum of American Fly Fishing or American Museum of Fly Fishing's, like, you know, donor list or, you know, board of directors or whatever, oh, wow. basically reaching out to, like, who not only loves fly fishing, but who could help support getting a movie made like this? Because one of the inherent challenges to this film is that on paper, it's a very, very risky proposition. You know, it's an inherently um, American film, even, you know, or hang on, let me qualify this. It is viewed as an inherently American film that, you know, and it's a drama, right? Now, I happen to believe that the film is actually quite universal, and I think you could have people all over the world watch it and understand it, even if they don't understand fly fishing. Um, but it is a drama, right? And often what's works in sort of independent film is genre, 
right? Thrillers, horror, that kind of stuff. Comedy, maybe comedy. So we have a very Americana film, you know, that is grounded in drama. And, um, and so it presents its inherent challenges to getting somebody to finance it. But Steve rightly felt that if he could find somebody that maybe had money, they might help independently finance it okay. because of the beauty of the story. While this is happening, Kelly uh, started calling around to producer or to, to people and producers trying to get info on, on shooting in Montana. You know, what's it like? What's the process? Is it a good place to shoot, a not good place to shoot? And she called my manager who had produced a movie called Population Zero, which is a mockumentary about the whole idea that, you know, there's a county in Yellowstone that, like, has zero population. So if you commit a murder there, yeah. you can't be tried by a jury of your the peers. The whole Yellowstone thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he had done a mockumentary, produced a mockumentary, and she asked him about it. He <laughs> is, said, that worth, oh, well, actually, is that worth watching? Should we check that out? The mockumentary? Yeah. I don't know. I've, to be honest, I've never seen okay, it. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I thought you were asking about Yellowstone. I'm like, I'm surprised you haven't already. <laughs> no, um, no, we've seen that. No, no, no. Um, but my manager was like, you know, oh, we actually shot that in Canada. Um, but like any great manager, he goes, well, what's the movie? What, what's the film you're making? And she said, you know, it's about a marine wounded in Afghanistan, fly fishing. And he fly fishes, and he knew I fly fish. And he said, do you have a director yet? And she said, no. And he said, well, I've got your director. Like, can I send him the script? And she said, yeah, sure. So he sent me the script. I read it immediately. Immediately I knew I had to do it, you know. And so I put together a pitch, you know, and took him through it. And, and it had been not only had I been fly fishing at that point, I mean, only two years at that point, but like had really fallen in love with it. But two, I had done an enormous amount of research concerning veterans and PTSD um, for other projects that hadn't gotten off the ground. So it was this insanely you know, timely melding of these yeah. two topics that I had had a lot of knowledge about. And I just really felt like, man, I got to get this one. I really got to get it. And fortunately, they took a chance on me. Now, when you said that you did a pitch, are you pitching yourself as a director and like throwing your ideas for like, okay, I have this script. This is how I would do this movie. So you're taking that script, taking it to the next step and pitching it to people to sell yourself as the director. Is that what that looks yeah. like? Yeah, like I get on the phone or on a Zoom with the producers um, and I say, you know, here's my read of this story. Here's how I would execute it. Here's how, you know, here's what's important to me. Here's how I connect to it, you know. And and the irony of that was, you know, Kelly had called Steve and said, hey, I think I found a director. And it turns out he's a fly fisherman, right? And Steve is like, who is a fly fisherman and writes about it and whatever. He was like, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, we'll see. And then he looked at my Instagram and he was like, oh, okay, this guy's actually a legitimate fly fisherman. Because <laughs> um, my Instagram is all fish pics, yep, basically, sure. you know, um, with some movie stuff sprinkled in. Um, and so that sort of made him comfortable, and I think he respected the idea. My pitch was basically like, I, we need to get this right. You know, like, I'm like, and, and, and I think that if you go hire some TV director who's going to come in and sort of execute this, who doesn't fly fish, who doesn't have a connection to the military. Like, I think you're going to get stuff wrong. And I don't think you want to get stuff wrong in this movie. I think you want to get it right. And here's why I will get it right. You know, I'm a fly fisherman. I have this much experience. I can talk, you know, we'll, I will figure out how we're going to do every little thing. You know, the military to me, like, 
how do we execute the PT? Like a lot of his questions, but a lot of it was sort of questions around making sure that we need to connect with the right people and the experts and the brands and like who are the technical advisors who are going to ensure that we get all this right. Yeah. And that became the sort of, for me, the defining mantra of this film. Um, it was like two parts. One, it was like, we need to get this right. And we need to tell this story with heart. And if we can do those two things, we are going to get a lot of people on our side, you know, with a film like this. And, um, and so then, it, you know, basically, yeah, like I, I came on board, they said, yes, we then through Steve's uh, cold calling these guys, we connected with a, a gentleman named Mark Kimura, who um, eventually came on as our primary investor. He's, I believe on the board, I don't know exactly his position, but he's on the board of the American Museum of Fly Fishing very much involved in like military related stuff through his, what he does uh, during the day, which is essentially like energy development. Um, and just real, he also, of course, like everybody that has saw the real beauty in this story and felt like he wanted to be a, a, a supporter of it. And so once I was on board, they were able to go back to him. He came on board. We fleshed out the rest of the financing. And then when I came on board, it was literally, I think, I mean, gosh, it was almost a, it was like 10 more months before we even got to Montana to start shooting. So as far as the financing goes, um, you guys do like private donors for that or how did y'all secure the financing? Cause it's not like y'all, I mean, y'all have, I mean, it's a movie full of stars. Um, yeah. I can't imagine that they were, uh, uh, I, I'm sure, I'm sure you had to pay them because they're fantastic actors who've played major roles in other movies. And so, um, how did the, when you talk about the financing part, like, was it donors? Did you get, I don't even, I don't know how all this works. It seems, it there's, seems like a yeah, mess. There's so many different ways you can finance films. You know, you've, you, there's the studios like Warner brothers or universal mm -hmm. and they just give you, they give you the money and then you deliver the film. And then there's like mini majors and they'll do things like, you know, foreign pre-sales where basically they, you know, determine, who are the actors that are going to sell the most or in theory sell the most, you know, overseas to foreign buyers. Right. But that means that's why they need to be like genres, like, you know, thrillers and action. Right. Um, but they go, Hey, well, you know, with this actor, with these actors, we expect that you will be able to sell the movie for 5 million. I'm making it up, but 5 million. Yep. Right. And then you can take those foreign sales guarantees to a bank as collateral and say, look, all these people say that as long as we have these people, we can get it for, we can sell it for 5 million. Bank goes great. We'll give you 5 million. Use that to make your film. Okay. I mean, that's a simplistic way of describing yeah, right, it. Right. right. Yeah. But, and then there's, you know, the totally independent model, which is like, you go find the dentist down the street, you know, or your parents or like whatever, and they give you cash to go make the film. Um, ours, you know, was sort of a mix, but what was challenging about this film was again, the the subject matter of the film presented challenges with a foreign sales model. You know, not only is it a drama, but also it's like, you know, it's Americana. So already, it doesn't matter who's in it, right? It doesn't matter if you go get Bruce Willis, right? Just as an example. Um, or some of these guys that do sell well overseas, it really isn't going to fundamentally change the prospects of the film for some reason. I don't know why it's all a bit of a house of cards, but, um, so that left us to get this film made. It left us with basically private equity financing. 
Um, and so that's where Mark came in. That's where like our other investors came in. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's basically structured as like a private equity investment and, um, they're sort of, you know, and they have quote unquote ownership of the film. Um, and then if the film does well, then everything gets split out. You know, once they're paid back, everything gets split out according to different, you know, deal structures. Okay. Okay. That's cool. But that was the thing too, was, you know, we needed to, without going into detail, I can't say what the budget was, but without, you know, we, we, we needed enough to actually do it right, but we didn't want more than we could conceivably make back, you know, because simply because it's still a risky film. I mean, I think we're going to do very well, but you know, it's still on paper. You never know. I mean, people aren't, Theatrical is not a big thing now unless you're a superhero movie. You know, it's a challenging market for adult dramas. COVID hasn't helped. You know, people are slow to come back to the theater. And yet I think that when you activate and target the right audiences, you know, it does lead to the potential for, you know, success in this film. How did you guys, uh, how does casting work in a film like this where you guys get a great cast um, are you talk, talk us through that. Are people auditioning and you guys are doing that? Or are you making calls to people that you so, know that you want in the film and we have to have this person in the film? Yeah. I mean, it starts with a casting director. We had a fantastic casting director, Neely Eisenstein. You know, she basically starts out and starts putting the other lists, right? Like, okay, we know that Coulter is somebody who's in his, uh, you know, early twenties, mid twenties, maybe, you know, if they're late twenties, can they play early twenties? You know, that whole thing. Um, I mean, in theory, most guys over in Afghanistan are very young. Right. So, but in the movies have conditioned us to believe that they're, they can play older. Um, but anyway, and then, and then you start getting your lists and then you start going, okay, well, who's, who's real, who's realistic, right. Who's not, um, Oh, we like this person, you know, um, well, if that's the case, then let's reach out to their agent with an offer and you make an offer and either get the offer accepted or they, you know, and, or they turn it down. And so it's just a process of sort of going, who do we like? Who's an interesting idea? I think one of the things that was exciting about this movie that doesn't often happen is when you're approaching it with a foreign sales um, structure, you, you end up getting very specific. It's very limited on who works for the money, mm-hmm. right? It's not a creative choice. It's a money choice. And then you hope it fits creatively in our case, because we did not have to go through that model. We were much more open to the purely creative choice. You know, um, we could go with who we thought really felt was, we felt was best and might deliver the best performance um, and was quote unquote also affordable, <laughs> but um, we weren't beholden to any kind of sort of, what is their value in Germany? Yeah. You know? Well, um, Zach and I, one of our conversations after we finished the film was how we really felt like the acting was, and all the roles were just perfect. I think that is probably one of my favorite things about the film is that the cast was fantastic and they nailed it. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, and I, that really goes a long way. It, it really it does. It really does go a long way. And I know you mentioned you really wanted to get the fly fishing right, which I think you guys did. But, like, not even that is just that um, I would say the four major roles in the film were just perfect. And um, and even, you you know, you were talking about earlier, 
you know, getting the PTSD right and everything, it all felt right, and the actors did a fantastic job. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, that's true, because you can get the technical stuff right. Yeah. But if your actors aren't, and if your actors aren't delivering that emotional journey to the audience, then what does it matter? You know, then you're just a, a how-to video. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that's come through. I mean, I, I think the cast was fantastic. I mean, you know, um, obviously Brian is Brian, you know, I mean, you don't have to, I mean, succession, his huge long pedigree of roles, everything from the Bourne films, you know, to, uh, adaptation to Troy to Manhunter. I mean, forget it, man. All I want to do is sit with him and like pick his brain. <laughs> you know? Just tell me stories. Yeah. Just tell me stories. Same with Wes. Right. Wes was kind of like my idea. It was just like we were looking for somebody to play Harrison that was interesting. That was like, a, you know, we were like, what's different? What's a what's a unique, you know, what's somebody that we haven't thought of? And I thought back to an, something I'd heard about how Wes Studi had done. And for those that don't know him by name, Wes Studi is, you know, he's most famously known as Mawa and um, Last of the Mohicans. Yep. And um super sweet, very nice guy. But I, you know, I had seen an article, he had done a, a supporting voice in soul, the Pixar movie. And I didn't even recognize him in that, but he's, in, he's one of the like heavenly counselors or whatever. Okay. And I remember an, a review going, you know, movies need more West studio. Like <laughs> let's, let's see West studio appear in more films. You know, some, some reviewer said that, and that just stuck with me. And I was like, what about Wes Studi? Do you think we could get Wes Studi? Like, he'd be great in this role. Do you think we could get him? And then it became a process of, like, you know, exploring that and talking to the manager and negotiating and all that stuff. And he ultimately came on board. And um, I'm really glad he did. You know, and Sinqua was sort of like this discovery, right? Like, he'd obviously, he's been doing work. He's been on, done a lot of TV. And we, he was suggested to us, through, I believe Brian's agent may have connected us to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause once you get going, once like, you know, Brian's interested, then you go, Hey, like, you know, we're looking for this type of guy. Like, do you have anybody that would fit? And I think, you know, Sinqua came into the picture and I was really taken with him. Like the first time we met and, you know, now, I mean, he's, he was in nanny, which had won Sundance. Um, he's in the white man can't jump reboot. Yep. He's got the black coming out and like now his star is like, you know, really starting to rise. And I think he's fantastic in this film. And I think what's great about this film is he is the lead, you know, like yeah. it is, it is moving. Um, and, you know, and then Perry was like a really great surprise. Like she was such a great find again, recommended by our casting director. And what sold me on her was basically like our casting director was like, I think she's fly fished before. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm, and so we got on the phone. Turns out like a year before she had gone up to Montana to this like retreat that is mainly used for veterans, mm -hmm. like to come up to Montana. She wasn't there with veterans, but like that's what it's used for. And she learned how to fly fish for like two days, you know, and that was it. Um, but I was like, well, that's more than most other people have. Yeah. So, um, and she just, again, really fell in love with the story. She loved the character. Um, you know, I think Lucy is, like, such a great character in this film. We did a lot of work to make sure that she, you know, has her own agency, has her own storyline, um, is not beholden to sort of just a male character, right? And and has a bit of a, like, you know, 
bit of sass to her and a bit of a like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. You know, yeah. I live. I, well, and then, well and go ahead, Zach. I'll let you. Well, I was going to say we were talking about that as well. And, 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 you know, if most people usually know a veteran, but also that's kind of like the relatable character as well. Like what she goes through in the film, which we won't get yep. into much. Um, most people. Well, no, she, I mean, yes, that's what she had to be because right. as much as people might know a veteran or whatever, like we wanted this movie to be able to connect with everybody and everybody has experienced trauma in some way. Right. You know, everybody yeah. has lost somebody. Right. You know, and so having a character that has lost somebody and is going through the, the, the emotions and the roller coaster of that became, is a way in for an audience that isn't, coming in through the military or coming in through fly fishing. Right. And I thought one of the more interesting dynamics in the movie was the relationship between her and her mother-in-law. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I mean, it's complicated and it's messy and it's challenging and it's, and that was really something I discovered, you know, I mean, Steve wrote it, but when you're, when you're reading it, I mean, to me, I was like, this is one of the standout storylines, you know, I mean, it's a standout storyline in a movie filled with standout storylines, but I just thought it was so richly written and written in a way that we hadn't seen before, you know, this like person who is stuck where she is, but by being stuck, she's just in this like sort of, downward spiral of trauma that she can never escape. I mean, it's the classic sort of issue of trauma, right? Like you're, you're stuck in a loop and you can never get out of it. Um, and, and so even like when they talk about how fly fishing can impact and help with trauma, it's because it, it, it cuts into that loop. You know, it sort of stops the brain from looping because you're, 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 you have to focus on the present in order to do it right. You know? And so, that's kind of her story. What happens is culture becomes that present thing that interjects and allows her to sort of see how she is stuck in the way that she is. And then, you know, she ends up having that journey. Um, but we did want, you know, it was important to me that we have these, all these characters are their own characters with their own storyline, their own arcs. And they all, you know, participate in this in some way and i also think that's that's what's so great about those kinds of relationships is like people kind of come into your life and it doesn't have to be romantic people come into your life and you kind of share the path for a little bit and then you separate again but in those moments when you're sharing the path you learn from each other you know and it's possible for like a man and woman to learn from each other without it needing to go romantic and turn into sex and all that kind of stuff you know i think i really appreciate that in this like because it's it it feels real because not every relationship you have is geared towards that is heading in that direction Mm -hmm. you know yeah exactly and so you know um so the casting ended up just really working out i mean you know i couldn't be happier with with who we have in the film and just the performances they deliver uh, how long did it? How long did filming take? So we only shot for like twenty-two days. Wow! I mean, wow. not uh, yeah, no, not well, a lot of time. You say I say wow, but then I I watch the film and then I think you know that's that's actually pretty doable because there's not a lot of different settings for the film. Um, yeah, I mean, and, look if you have if you have thirty million to make this film, you're shooting for seven weeks. Yeah, you know, the same film is being shot for seven weeks. Yeah. Uh, I think it's three just, weeks, and that also includes, you know, off days and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's a tight schedule. Yeah, are I mean, there we, off days? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we had we had 19 days in Montana, and then we did three three shooting days at Camp Pendleton down in San Diego. So that everything that you see in the beginning of the film, yeah, is Camp the, Pendleton. the military. That was, scenes, that was one of my yeah. questions: where you guys were on set for that? Yeah, San Diego. Yeah. 
Yeah, we were really fortunate with this film. We were able to partner with the U.S. Marine um, Entertainment Liaison Office. So, you know, in the same way that when they make Top Gun, they go to the Navy and the Navy says, hey, we'll give you all the jets and we'll let you come on the carrier and we'll let you do all this stuff. Uh, same thing happened with us. So basically, we were able to partner with the U.S. Marine Corps. They offered us not only the ability to go down and shoot on Camp Pendleton on their Afghan village set, um, but they offered us personnel. All the like vehicles are provided by them, and it was all provided free of charge. Oh wow! Yeah. Now, are all the guys uh, you know that were in the military scenes are all are they all actors, or are some of those guys military guys? So the main guys with dialogue. Yep. Um, that are kind of in the Humvee and have dialogue and stuff like that. Those guys were actors. Okay. Um, but everybody else, sort of the quote unquote extras that you see in the background and all that stuff, those were all uh, actual Marines. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's cool. cool. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like great because you just, you don't have to tell them what to do. You know, you're like, you're in a firefight and they're just doing all of the action, you know, that you need them to. And then, yeah. then you can just focus on the performance cool. of, the, of the lead actor. Yeah. So let's get into the fly fishing part of this. Uh, we are a fly fishing podcast, and so uh, let's let's talk about what it takes to make the fly fishing scenes. And I know we talked before we actually watched the movie, and you said that there was some movie magic. Um, so what what does that look like with you guys filming the catching fish scenes with live animals with live animals yeah. with live animals? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as anybody who fishes knows, fishing is not a guarantee. Well, catching is not a guarantee. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, anybody that watches all the great, you know, fly fishing porn videos, I guess, of, of fish, they don't know that that's three days worth of material cut into two minutes, you know. <laughs> and and so in our case, as you having 19 days, you don't have the luxury of waiting around. And, and you wouldn't even if you had more time, right? Like you just you can't. You can't do it that way. So basically what we have to do is we had to figure out how are we doing the fishing? Like how are we accomplishing the various stages of fishing in a way that's going to be both realistic and believable um, but doable, right? And so the first the – qu the question I really had from the moment I came on was how are we doing the fish? You know, I'm like how are we doing the fish? Like because – if you want to do a car crash in a film or an explosion like we did, there are 50 people you can call, you know, who do it all the time on different movies. But really there's only a handful, if not one movie that is actually done people catching trout in a film, you know, on a fly yeah. rod. With um, actors, I mean, there's a lot of fly fishing actors, films right. out there, but those guys already fish and they know what they're doing. And they're, I'm talking about narrative yeah, yeah, movies, yeah, right? Yeah, Not sure. docs that play. You know, yeah, that right. stuff. I mean, those guys. Again, that's the three days cut into two minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, in our case, it was really like we had we had a schedule. We had to stick with it. And we had to figure out to accomplish how to accomplish it. And um, so what we ended up doing was Steve, Stephen, and I ended up connecting with a couple of guys who had actually worked on A River Runs Through It um, because that was the only other movie that had really done this and done it in a way that was believable. Um, and so we connected with a guy named Jason Borga. Uh, Jason Borga was a guy who – he was Brad Pitt and Craig Schaefer's uh, casting double on River Runs Through It. Okay. So the the uh, shadow casting scene uh -huh. where Pat Pitt is casting, that's Jason Borga. Okay. Um, and great guy, fly fisherman, like he was 19 at the time, I think, when they made the film. Um, his dad was working on it, 
and he called and Jason came in and he, Jason started doubling and working with the actors and like all that kind of stuff. So Jason actually talked us through a couple of things, which was one, he's like, you know, anytime you see them fighting fish down in the water, like fighting the fish, um, it's a, it's a half gallon. I'm giving away all the secrets here. It's a half gallon milk jug filled with rocks and then filled the cra- the rest of it's filled with water. I was wondering, like, cause, like you have a camera, uh, if this is too much, but you have a camera angle that's shooting up at uh, the actors from the perspective of the line coming out of the water. And I was wondering yeah. how you guys are doing that. So that's cool. So you either you either you know if you're doing this if you're doing the set, right? Uh-huh. That line is either held off camera or it's tied to a stick or uh-huh. like something, right? And then once they're fighting it you know, um, or trying to reel it in, uh, that's the, the milk jug. And the reason why you do the milk jug the way you do is that it's, it, it sinks under the water, but it floats. And so like, you know, like bounce to it or action to it a little bit. Exactly. So like, you know, somebody will be upstream of the actors and they like launch the milk jug out into the river. Oh my gosh. I would (laughs) love to see this. And then you call action, you call action. And they go, and they're like, you know, fighting it down the river, and then they you and know, the rod the tips bending like a fish would actually. And, yeah, yeah, and you feel yeah. that pressure, you feel that play, and and uh, they can strip the line in, they can do all that, and you know, but but what's going to happen is the jug is just going to float. So by the, you know, it, there's no running back upstream upstream or anything, it's just going to float down, and then it gets to the, below them, and then you call cut, um, and uh, and then. The, you know, and then basically um, we have sort of the, the quote unquote, um, you know, the release, right? That's when you then see the fish with, with the beautiful shots of the real fish. And to pull off the real fish, we, we had to, um, we called a guy who, all, you know, got connected with a guy who also worked on rivers through it. He's a fisheries biologist. Um, he's built most of the wealthy private trout ponds across the country and he's a guy named joe urbani and in addition to building trout ponds for very rich people he also rehabitate uh re streams and um and so but he knows all about i mean he's a he's an awesome guy and his sons are into it and basically we said he was like he was the guy who got the fish for river runs through it and um in our case we said well we need fish joe and he said, well, what kind of fish? And I said, well, you know, and we had sort of talked about it. We were like, well, it'd be great if like Coulter's first fish is like a cutty, you yep. know, like a Yellowstone cutthroat. And doesn't have to be big. Shouldn't be ridiculous, right? Should be a nice, nice fish, but not massive. We don't need Brad Pitt, him to be Brad Pitt in every scene, you know? And I said, you know, and as for the rest of it, it would just be really nice if wh- whatever we can get. I'm not, you know, if we get a sizable fish, awesome. If we don't, it's not the end of the world. I'm really glad we got some good sizable fish, but you know, it, it was one of those things where I said it was kind it was of well open. rounded. I won't give anything yeah, away, it was, but it was well rounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to see some? You want to see a good amount of fish, but you also don't want to see it. You don't want to just see huge. You want massive. it to be realistic, like if right. someone, you know. Relatable, and every once in a while you'll somebody, catch a big fish, and then every once in a while you'll catch a, a tiny, tiny fish. fish. Yeah, and somebody fishing for their first time, you're going to be happy with a, a foot-long fish, oh, you know, right. or a 14-inch fish, you yeah. know. So um, so I believe, like, the cut, the cutthroats, I think he was able to purchase. He actually purchased those from a um, hatchery. Mm. 
Um, Paid actors, and then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, well, 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 so here's the deal. So the way Joe manages all this is he's got an oxygenated tank on the back of his pickup truck. So the fish are, like, living in luxury in this, like, oxygenated water tank for, like, you know, a short period of time. They're not in there very long. Um, but then, meanwhile, he's going out every single we, – we did, like, three or four days on the water where we would need fish. And he basically would go out every morning and, and, and catch fish. And, you know, that I said, how are you going to get the fish? And he said, well, I'm going to go out and catch them in the morning. And I said, Joe, I would not want that job. But <laughs> no. good on you for doing that. And so one, I don't want that, the job that you have, but two, I would like to now go fishing with you because obviously you are going to spots where you are confident that you were going to catch a lot of fish. Um, I didn't get to go fishing with him, but eventually I will. Did those purchased Um, fish ultimately get released? Like in, in, in the scenes where they were released, were they like, no, no, (laughs) no, no. no. So um, in addition to the other fish, you know, look, we had multiple cutthroats and multiple white fish, right. For the scene with the white fish. Those are easy. Tons of them, but we only had the, the Brown that you see in the beginning and end of the film. We only had one of those, you know? And so what happens is the way it works is you basically tie uh, a fishing line around the bone, part of the jaw you know to the yep. fish okay so you have them attached right and then the uh actor will put it they, the fish get put in the net and, and it's hilarious because you know for the close-up of the fish i have a picture of us shooting the close-up of the fish and when you see it from the wide there are 20 people standing around that scene like there are camera people, people holding the camera, people, three people standing with nets just out of frame, like an AD, like there, there, it is the most, you know, the fish got the biggest close up and like the most amount of people working on that close up. Like even Brian made a comment like, oh, it's time for the fish's close up now. And like, you know, we'd be rushing through the actors and then the fish were all like, we got to take our time, got to handle them correctly, whatever. Um, but basically then the actor, you know, you call action, the fish in the net, the actor, you know, does a release because that's what's different in our movie versus like a river runs through it. A river runs through it, they kept the fish, right. you know, so those could have been grocery store fish, you know, yeah. it didn't matter. They should have already been dead. <clears throat> but in our case, we needed, we were showing catch and release. And so we needed those fish to be alive and they needed to be healthy and they needed to be handled with care and respect. And so, um, because they were also wild fish. And so basically they would hit, they would then release the fish into the water and, uh, and, you know, hopefully right into one of the waiting nets. <laughs> and then um, we would call cut and we'd grab them out of the net and we'd do one or two more takes. And then that was it. Um, and, and then we had to d- digitally erase the, the fishing line in post. Um, okay. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where, so basically just to go through it again, the way you got to shoot all this stuff is in pieces. So you shoot the, you shoot the cast, right? So you get the actors casting, right? And then you got to shoot the uh, sort of, you know, the, I guess not, we didn't really do much of the line drifting and the, and the fly drifting, um, but you got to get the take, right? We were not in a position to actually capture any takes. Um, again, that's something where you send a guy out with a camera for two days and he just shoots take after take after take after take, right? right. So what I actually did was I reached out to um, to two guys. Um, uh, uh, what are their names? Uh, Gilbert 
is it Gilbert Trolley, um, Capture Adventure Media. He does all of, um, I think it's Gilbert Rowley, actually. Um, let me just double check this so I get it right. But basically, I reached out to these two guys who had, um, yes, Gilbert Rowley and um, another guy named Ryan who has a, an account named uh, Green River Fly Fisherman or Green River Fly Fishing. And I just, I followed them on Instagram and they just had, really beautiful shots of trout taking flies. And I just kind of cold called them. And I said, listen, like I just made this movie. This is what it's about. I need like shots of fish taking the fly. Do you have anything? And do you have anything that matches this kind of setting and this type of fish? And they were able to go through their libraries and send me some stuff that, that really, I mean, that's all that stuff in the film is all them, you know, beautifully shot, beautifully captured. Um, it was just no way for us to do it beyond the fact that we didn't see any on the day. Um, that's just not something we can stand around and wait for. And when I got into the edit, it became clear to me that we needed something like that. We needed to see those moments. Right. Um, and, and to see it with, with it versus without it, it's like a completely different, you know, series, um, sequence basically. And so anyway, so, but you gotta have that and then you gotta have the set. Right. So we talked about how you do the set and then you got the fighting and then you got to have the sort of netting and the release. And so all of those parts of the film are all shot in those little snippets and then they're put together into the final edit. So uh, so like on the on the few shots you have where people are actually fighting fish and you see them you know, flopping in the water. Is that like um, that, that? That is all Gilbert and gotcha, uh, yeah. And Ryan. Wow. OK, cool. Because yeah. Like any fish jumping, you know, because. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I mean, even well, and and I'm well. I was saying any any of the fish jumping, you know, because you know we heard stories on um, uh, River Runs Through It where they spent like three, like the shot where where I think it's um, pit like sets and and a big fish jumps out of the water. Maybe it was Craig Schaefer. I don't remember who, but he basically um, there's a set and the fish jumps and like, uh, or, but Joe was telling us they spent three days trying to get a fish to jump out of the water, you know, like, like they were standing on a ladder with a line on the fish and like pulling him out of the water. And it was just like, I was like, we're not doing that. I don't have time. I don't have three days to like try and shoot a fish yeah. jumping out of the water. So by the way, just so I get the, the name right is Ryan Kelly, who has an account called green river fly fisher. Okay. And he just has some really, st- really stunning footage um, of fish on the green river. And it, they were so great because I could go, I need this type of water. Right. Like it needs to be somewhat like this type of water, either like flat water or like rushing water. Like I need this type of brown about this size. And they were able to go through their library of shots and really find things that ultimately really, you know, really. I mean, again, it was felt seamless in the film. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You would never you could never tell. No. And I think, too, like, you know, for me you know, that was an aspect of the film that I also thought was important, which was, which was reaching out to the community, you know, and getting them involved, um, and, and finding ways to incorporate, you know, elements of that and people's work in this film, if I could. Yeah. Well, fly fishing is such a community sport. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I feel like everybody kind of knows everybody in the fly fishing world, you know, and so uh, that, yeah. that's really important that you you took the time to make sure you highlighted that. Well, and even you know going to the fly filming in one of the fly shops, and right. you know filming on a drift boat, and 
filming with different types of rods. One guy's fishing a bamboo. One guy, you know, like they're yeah. actually tying flies in the film, tying on a regal, which is like in my mind the staple fly tying vice. Um, like that's those, actually my that's my regal, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> is it really? Oh, is it? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I tie on a regal yeah. too. My buddy, funny story, uh, Grant has a, a vice that looks exactly like a regal, but it's probably like a forty dollar knockoff. He took a Sharpie and wrote Regal on the top of it. So we joke that he has a Regal as well. Uh, yeah, I saw yeah. that vice for the first time the other day. But um, all those, like, little details, they, you know, for a lot of people that have never fly fished or maybe fly fish one time a year, they're not going to notice those little details. But, like, if, if you're really into the sport and part of the community, like, that's stuff that you notice. Yeah. Or, like, oh, yeah. I use that, you know, specific thing. Or I have those same waders or, you know, um, Whatever it might be. I've been to that fly shop before. You know, that's all cool right. stuff that, you know, people in fly fishing get excited about. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, we had a ton of great brand partners on this. I mean, um, you know, Farbank uh, was a part of this film from the beginning. They have Sage, Reddington, that yep. kind of stuff. So they, they really became our sort of tackle supplier. I mean, they brought, they lent, they gave us all the rods, all the reels, um, all the, like, fly lines and and all the, like, you know, leaders and tippet and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they provided all that to us. And, um, and then they also have, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Simon Gosworth. Um, he's a, uh, you should look him up. I mean, he's a world record fly fisherman and he's the head of education and outreach for Farbank. Okay. And, um, he basically, they lent, he came, he was our fly fishing technical advisor. I mean, he taught Brian how to cast. He taught the rest of the actors how to cast. Um, he was there every day of the fly fishing scenes, preparing all the fly rods, getting all that stuff ready. Um, you know, I mean, he was a huge asset to the film and it's just a gentleman too. I mean, he's a nice guy. Everybody loved having him around. And so that was contributive, right? Like, cause then as much as I'm a fly fisherman and Steven's a fly fisherman, it's like, we don't have time to really pay attention to all that. We're trying to get the movie made. So to have Simon there sort of acting as a technical advisor, making sure everything's correct, working with the actors to make sure the cast, their casting looks good. um, You know, that was hugely important. And then, you know, one of the things that, that Barbank said to us was, you know, because they have Reddington, obviously Reddington makes waiters. We don't have any Reddington waiters in the film. They said, listen, if you can get Sims, um, we'd be okay with you using Sims waiters instead of Reddington because Sims a Montana based company and it would make the most sense. And so we were basically then fortunate to get connected up with Sims. So Sims gave us all the waiters, all the boots, all the like gear, clothing, um, all that stuff was provided by Sims. And, um, and again, much, much of it was just lent to us, you know, um, or given. And so that really helped us, you know, to not have to go and rent or buy fly rods and, and, and yeah. waiters and all that stuff. Like, you know, that's a huge chunk of your budget. And so, um, and then, you know, road drip boats lent us a drip boat for the day, you know, for that scene. Um, the bamboo rods were actually um, hand built. So by Tom Morgan Rodsmiths yep. in Bozeman. Um, they built us two rods specifically for the film, wow. um, which which then Brian, you know, had to learn how to cast. And um, and yeah, so we just had, you know, I had a, my buddy, um, all the nets in the film were made by my buddy, my buddy, Mike Craig over at No Leaf Clover Net Company. Um, he does these really awesome handmade nets. Um, 
that are just beautiful. So all those nets that you see in the film. Yeah, I was wondering. I was like, those nets have to be handmade, and they are gorgeous. I did note that like two two separate points of the movie. I was like, the nets were yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and because I just said, you know, I don't want to put some aluminum net in there, you mm. know, or some basic thing. Like, let's do something different. Let's do something interesting. And I bought, I have a couple nets from Mike myself, and he's a great guy, and just does beautiful work. And again, if I can, you know, why not put that in the film versus like some mass-produced, you know, type of thing. And so, um, you know, just that—that that was also just, you know, that attention to detail, getting the bamboo, you know, rod, and making sure that was right, and the nets, and, like, just making sure everything felt authentic yep. and right um, was really important. You know, we shot on the Yellowstone. We shot on Depew's Spring Creek um, in Montana. Pri- private I mean, we shot in some... So the Depew's Spring Creek is private, yep. but it is a it's, – it's a storied – Spring Creek. I mean, that and Nelson's next door. Uh, I mean, anytime you read, you know, anybody fly fishing Spring Creeks in Montana and Bozeman, that's what they're talking about. You know, they're just iconic Spring Creeks at this point. And then we also shot on the Gallatin. So the beginning of the film and the end of the film was the Gallatin, which is a little nod to River Runs Through It because we shot in like the same place that so at the end of River Runs Through It, when he's old, I'm giving spoilers, but when yeah. he's old and he's fly fishing and you see behind him the cliffs, yep. we were right in front of those cliffs. Hey, oh, that's, that's you awesome. said they're wearing Easter eggs. That's a nice little Easter I egg. I guess I, that, that is a little yeah. Easter egg. I yeah. forgot about that that's, one. That's nice. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, um, and so, you know, again, just that kind of stuff, really that attention to detail was yeah. was important to us, and we wanted to make sure we, we got a lot of that stuff in there. Uh, let's, what, how did you become a movie director? Like that's, that's not an easy job to get. Like how do, you, how do you convince somebody to like, let you make a movie basically? Well, I mean, I've been making movies since I was in high school, really. I mean, you know, I, I've just, that's what always, I've always wanted to do. It's what I pursued. I, I, you know, I didn't go to film school, but I was making movies in college and I basically, um, made a movie called the beautiful lie which got nominated for and won an MTV movie award, um, a golden popcorn. And, um, and, uh, basically that, that sort of, here, I'll show it to you. I know we don't have video, but here it is. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. So that was, that was in 2006. And, and essentially I thought I was hot shit. I just graduated from high school. I thought it was going to be a big deal. I mean, college, I graduated from college. I won a movie award and I came out to Hollywood and nobody, nobody cared. Like nobody watched it. And, um, nobody knew that I won. It wasn't a big deal. You know, I thought that like, I, I get that the movie awards are like best kiss and things like that. But I thought for like me, it might be different, but it was not. Um, so now it's a cool thing, but at the time it didn't do much for me. And, and so, except it taught me a valuable lesson, which was if I was going to succeed in this business, it was going to be because of what I was doing and not because anybody else was going to hand something to me. Mm. So I put the award away and stopped looking at it and I got to work and I started directing music videos and I, I did whatever I could, you know, and eventually I took a job working for um, Anthony Zyker, who created CSI. And I started working in development with him kind of right at the nascent stages of digital. Um, You know, this is like 2009, 2010. Um, YouTube is just starting to take off as a, as a hub for actual filmmaking, you know, as opposed to funny cat videos. And, um, and I got to be involved in a lot of digital stuff. 
Um, and as a result of that, I got to direct, I got to produce, like I got to work with really cool people and, and got a lot of experience. And then, but I was itchy to do my own feature, right? I had done shorts. I wanted to do a feature film and I basically using sort of the Canon 5d, which is this camera that allows you to shoot, you know, in a lot of, you use natural light very effectively versus like traditional film cameras that require, you know, a much more elegant approach to lighting. You need a crew and you need lights. You know, you can't just walk out your front door and start shooting. The Canon 5D was a little different. And I, I conceived of and wrote and produced and directed this film called Layover, which I made for $6,000. And um, that premiered at Seattle International Film Festival, got nominated for a Bipersheet New American Cinema Award, which is this kind of prestigious body that, that you know, hands out these nominations. And it kind of kick-started my career. And, um, after that I did like a series for Hulu. I did two more, th two more movies, um, that were kind of lower budget. And then I did a movie called infamous in 2019 came out in 2020, which is, uh, stars Bella Thorne. And it's a, uh, basically it's like a modern day Bonnie and Clyde, two young kids, Robin weed stores and putting it up on the gram, you know, for likes and becoming like hugely famous as a result. Um, and that came out totally different than Mending the Line. Like, I mean, it's a gonzo, almost, uh, you know, just in your face, you know, bubblegum saccharine pop type of film. Um, and that did decently for me. But I was, uh, again, and then, and then Mending the Line came along. So it's just been this, like, for me, I mean, I've wanted to do it since I was young, but I've just been driven by it and just have been trying to work doing it as much as I possibly yeah. can. And then, and then, um, leverage any opportunity I get into the next opportunity. Do you, uh, have any future projects in the works? I have a few that are, you know, in various stages, nothing sort of concrete that's going to go. We're under threat of a potential writer's strike right now in Hollywood that may happen this summer, which, which has everyone kind of skittish. Um, so, you know, Nothing, nothing necessarily like I know that this is the date that we're going, but there's a couple of things that may, may, may or may not go later this year. Um, and so a lot of my attention has really just been on, you know, sort of setting up the, um, setting up many line, you know, yeah. and, and, and getting it ready for, to come out. Um, what are your favorite films? Some of your favorite films? My favorite films. I love my favorite film of all time is the insider. Uh, Al Pacino, Russell Crowe, mm -hmm. directed by Michael Mann. I think that's one of the best movies ever made. Um, you know, I like Traffic, um, Magnolia, Heat, uh, Fight Club. Um, I think Gladi Gladiator is one of my favorite films. Yep. You know, I, I really came of age kind of right in that, like, late 90s, early 2000s type type of area i mean I love, I love everything anything by michael mann anything by paul greengrass um you know heat collateral i mean yeah. all that kind of stuff that okay. that's really where my my uh love lies i guess for for the film that's awesome um yeah what are, are we missing anything what uh okay what what is your biggest lesson learned from making this movie I mean, I think that it's a good question. I mean, I think, that, you know, for me, what was really interesting to me, I don't know if this is a lesson as much as it's like something I really, I guess you could say, cause I took it away from it. So like so much of, um, 
so much of being a director in filmmaking is it's an ego driven enterprise, you know? Um, and a lot of it is like this, I'm a director. This is what I want the movie to be. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want, you know, that kind of thing. This is my story. Right. And, and there's place for that for sure. One of the really interesting things that happened to me on this film was that kind of entirely went away. And, you know, one of the really cool things that I got to do was, um, Basically, in the May, so we shot in like July, August. Um, so the May before that, uh, the month of May, I went out to Montana to do some location scouting. Um, and while we were out there, I, uh, Stephen and I, the writer, got to go fish with a group of veterans from Warriors and Quiet Waters. So Warriors and Quiet Waters is the uh, uh, group, you know, a uh, uh, nonprofit that is basically helping post 9-11 combat veterans find peace on the water through fly fishing. And they do these amazing um, experiences where uh, you can apply for it. If you're a veteran, if you're a post 9-11 combat veteran, you can apply to come. They fly these guys out. They put them up in their, in their, um, you know, lodge. Uh, everybody gets a fly rod from Sage and a waders and boots from Sims and they go out and they fish. And if these guys want to talk, they can talk if they don't want to talk, they don't have to talk. It's just a safe place for them to exist and get away from whatever's going on in their life and, and just fish and experience the power of that. And I, so I got to go and, and uh, fish with some of these guys and talk to them and hear their story. And that was super impactful. One of them ended up actually becoming um, a, a friend and we incorporated a lot of his experience into the film mm. uh, after talking with him, you know, because he, he clarified for us sort of a, a thing that we we're wrestling with, which, which is like, what is the process? Like, could somebody conceivably be, be injured and then go back in, you know, could they, could, is that conceivable or are they out? And he sort of said, no, he's like, you know, I got it. I was severely injured. He's like, and I really wanted to go back. And I, I never, to me, the idea of leaving never happened, you know, was never in my mind. He's like, but, in, and I trained physically for it. And everybody, eventually they were like, listen, physically you're good to go, but mentally you're, you can't. Right. Cause he, he was not dealing with that stuff, you mm -hmm. know? And anyway, so, so we, 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 there's more to it, but basically it was just a, a lot of details that we really felt would work for Coulter's story. So we actually incorporated it with his blessing. We incorporated a lot of it. Um, and, but just the experience of sitting with these guys. And as I really started to make the film, I, my attitude was like, this film has to work and it has to be great, but not because I want it to be great. I'm just a shepherd of this story. You know, I'm just, I'm just the guy who's bringing this story to the big screen. And so for me, the act of needing to get it right is driven by doing honor to what these guys have done in their real life. Like I'm making a movie, this is pretend, you know, but this is a real world issue. And there are these organizations like Warriors and Quiet Waters that are out there doing this hard work of trying to help these guys get past and, and deal with, and at least, or at least um, be able to live with what, they experienced and the the way that fly fishing has changed a lot the lives of these guys for the better 
is remarkable. And so to me, it really became about doing honor to their sacrifice and, and, and doing honor to, to what they shared with me and an effort to get it right. And that was a completely different experience than I've ever had on another movie. Because on every other movie for me, it's like, I'm the director. It doesn't matter. Like, this is what I want, right? But really feeling more like a vessel for this story and for the beautiful script that Steve wrote, that, that was changing for me. So, like, even in the edit – there are oftentimes on other movies where I'm like, this is what I want. I'm not changing it. I'm not taking any notes from the producers, right? Like, this is my vision. And on this movie, I mean, I was sending new cuts of the film to the producers every day to the point where they were saying, yeah, stop, because we don't have time to watch all these, right? But I was always just going, can this be better? Can we change this? What if we got rid of this? What if, like, cutting things down, cutting things out that I spent hours shooting, I was like, this doesn't work. It's gone, you know? Whereas in, I think in a previous experience, I might have said, Oh, but I spent five hours shooting and it's great. And I might've just insisted on it being in just because, you know? Um, and so that was a big change for me just from a, a work perspective, you know, but then also just meeting these guys and hearing their story and, and that kind of thing was really, really important. And one thing you mentioned offline, but we didn't get to talk about the Steve thing was, so when Steve, Steve obviously does this, thank you, right. To the fish. Yep. And I, I blatantly stole that for Ike. I was just like, that's such a beautiful character touch. And um, I have to use it. And this was before I ever met Steve. This was before we were in using the book. I just used it. And he told me that when he first watched the film, that happened. And he was shocked, right? But in a good way. He thought he, he loved the fact that we had used it. Um, but it just felt right for the character of Ike. And so, but it's like that, well, that's what was also fun. We just got to bring in these real things, you know, from all these conversations we had. I mean, the line in the movie about how, you know, in the book of every soldier's life, the military is a chapter, but it's not the whole story. That was something told to me by a veteran. Mm. You know, that was, that was word for word, something a veteran told me that I, uh, who was a fly fisherman, he was a fly yeah. guide. And he said, you know, everybody, he's like, you know, I'd sit down. Uh, he'd tell me about how an older guy told him that. And he just said, you know, every, you know, the, the, in the book of every, you know, the line in the book of every soldier's life, like everybody, you know, the military is just a chapter, but everybody thinks it's the whole story, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and so, um, well, and I, I think that's, I was going to say, I think, uh, like you did a good, there's a lot of good things to take away from this movie, um, different perspectives from different people's lives, different lessons learned. But I, I really think, and one of the reasons I asked you that last question was that, um, the biggest takeaway for me was, you know, just passing what you've learned on to the next person. And like right. we kind of touched on earlier, was, you know, two people in passing, there doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, but they can learn from each other and move on. You can teach something to somebody else and move on. And it's really cool um, uh, how, how all of this came together and uh, such a good movie. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'll, I'll give you one more Easter egg. Okay, okay, the, perfect. The, obviously not the guy, not the son. But the family at the end, the wife and the two kids, are is my wife and two kids. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so that's so my cool. son, Austin, who's got the line, and was then that that's my wife. Was that a pain gig, or was that a, we got to <laughs> no, cut the budget? Yeah. No, he got paid. Oh, yes. yeah. you nice. Can't, you, can't, you can't mess with SAG. Yeah. No, he gets, he gets paid. That's so awesome. now, of course, he wants a line in every film. But, <laughs> um yeah, no. So that's a that's a nice little that's history. Really I'll cool. say one thing because, by the way, I'm not limited to time. But the one thing we never talked about is just fly fishing. 
in my own experience. Well, that's yeah. what, honestly, that's what I, yeah. I wrote down a couple of things. I didn't about know that. if you were crunched on time. We told you now, or we're past that, but we can keep talking. Dude, I'm good to keep talking, yeah, honestly. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, um, okay, so what got you interested in fly fishing? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Seattle. I had gone fishing with my grandfather, but like spin fishing. But we'd go trout fishing. We'd go up to, you know, a lake in Canada, and then we'd go up like salmon fishing, you know, like do that deep sea salmon fishing and halibut fishing in um, in Alaska. And so I really enjoyed that, but I didn't do it on a regular basis. You know, sometimes down on the dock, we'd go down and try and catch a bait, you know, a bass or like something yeah. in like Washington. But I never really got that much into it. Um, but it was always lurking there, right? Like I remember one Christmas I got a creel. Like my brother and I got creels, but we weren't like, we weren't fly fishermen. So they were kind of decorative, but I just remember being like, what is this thing? Like, what is this thing used for? Right. And, um, and it just kind of stuck with me, but I, I, you know, and then I, I went to New York for college and then I moved out to LA and I lived in LA for 10 years. And, um, you know, and then I moved back to New York with my wife. Um, she's from the area. And we were looking for a change, and we moved to sort of the Hudson Valley area of, of New York. And um, I remember one year, you know, in 2017, the first year we moved here, basically, like, you know, I think my parents were like, what do you want for Christmas? I was like, I don't know. Like, why don't you get me, like, what about, like, a fly fishing guided, like, a, tr a day fly fishing? Like, that'd be cool. I was, like, in this mood of, like, I want an experience, right? I don't want a thing. Yeah. Don't get me a thing. I want an experience. Then my parents actually, because it was – Odd, odd at the time because now it's pretty – there's a lot of people in here and a lot of info. But like five years ago, if you searched like Catskills fly fishing, there was not a lot of people, um, a lot of guides. And so my parents ended up getting me an or a two-day Orvis class. And I went uh, at San Anona. Yeah. And I went and took a two-day – the two-day class. You know, part of the deal is you get a discount on a rod and reel. So I was like, well, I should get it. What's the point of doing this if I'm not going to do it? And so I got a rod and reel and then uh, like a clear water. And then my uh, for Father's Day, I said I wanted uh, give me a gift card to Orvis so I can get boots and waders. Nice. And um, so I got I got that stuff and I went to the only river. I had no idea how to find out information. And the only river I knew of here was the Ramapo River, which is a dinky dumpy little river um but it was close and it sort of was the only thing i could find that made sense you know so i started going there in the mornings and just proceeded for an entire season to not know what i'm doing i caught one brown on a dry fly on an adams fishing like downstream i don't even know how i did it i have no idea but like i have a picture of it it's first fly caught on a uh, fish I caught on a fly um, on a dry no less in a river that did not have fish and um, <laughs> and uh, you know but I just proceeded to not catch fish and not really know what I was doing right or wrong and I started though I started but on Instagram I started following guys right I started following fly fishermen and stuff like that and I followed this guy who was lived up in the Catskills and his name was Landon Bursur and he was catching fish left and right. And I don't know why, I can't remember the details of the conversation, but I think I, I commented on something and it sparked a conversation, right? You guys talk about fly fishing community, all that kind of stuff, sparked a conversation. And he introduced me, effectively, he introduced me to Euro nymphing. And so then I proceeded to get a Euro rod and started catching fish. 
right? And I was like, oh, this, okay, now it's starting to click, right? And um, because the thing is, I was standing in rivers that I didn't even know if there were fish in those rivers, yeah. you know? Um, and and so he got me, so I started Euronymphing. And, and that sort of, once I started catching fish and understood how I was catching fish and what flies I should be using and things like that, you know, within that one specific mode, then everything else opened up to me. Right. And, and then I go, okay, now that I know how to do this. How do I fish streamers? Okay. I know how to do that. How do I get, let's do dries. Right. Like, I mean, really for the first two years of fly fishing, I didn't fish a dry fly because <clears throat> I didn't know how, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't understand. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to look out for. You know, I, I, nipping, I understood because I was like, I can't see the fish, but they're probably there. Yeah. Right. Whereas dry fly, you're like, I can't see the fish and I don't know if they're there um, because I don't know if they're coming up for it. So, and then I started fly. I started fishing like the Asopus, and turns out that like I live about an hour away from basically the birthplace of American fly fishing. Um, the Catskills is really where American fly fishing was born, and I live very close to essentially some of the most storied rivers in fly fishing history. I mean, the Willow Weemock, the Beaverkill, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, the Asopus, um, a little more modern, but the West Branch of the Delaware. Um, and I proceeded to just start fishing and it just became a full on obsession. Um, and so now I fish over, I like to go fish the, um, Farmington over in Connecticut, um, which is a great fishery. Um, and then, you know, I also fish around here and depending on the time of year, might, might do a float with Landon, um, might do, who's a guide now he guides, um, you know, might, might go hit dry flies on the East branch might go do dry fly all day over on the Farmington. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's become a lot of fun and it's become a major, major obsession for me. Um, obviously, I mean, I made a whole movie about it, Yeah, but, um, it seems like that's how it is. If people get into it, and I'm it, only five years in, so yeah. <laughs> six years in, I mean, it is, it's such a yeah. deep, it's such a rabbit hole, you know, because of the second, you know, again, even I go, I go, oh, why would I buy, why would I buy Sims waiter? Why would I pay $800 for Sims waiters? That's ridiculous. Like, I'm never doing that. I'm just going to get my $200 Orbis ones, right? Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, honestly, after making the movie with Sims as a partner, I'm like, how can I not wear Sims waiters? Yeah, right. Like, you know, and, well, and, and you see the craftsmanship of it. It's cool. Not that Orbis is it, but it just, you know, again, oh, I, why would I ever spend $1,000 on a rod? It's like, well, I've done it a couple times now. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's... That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, and it's cool to yeah. hear that you started, uh, you know, I uh, I used to uh, uh, be a manager at an Orvis store here in San Antonio, and how the amount of people that get into fly fishing by taking either, like, uh, the two-day fishing school or going through one of the, like, the store classes um, yeah. that I used to teach is just crazy. And it's, yeah. it's I'm always get excited when I hear someone. I, the first thing I did was I went to a, or either, like, a fly fishing 101 or Orvis school uh, fly fishing school. And that's, that's really cool as well. Um, I mean, it was a great, great class, you know, I mean, you, you get into it. I remember just being like, I don't know. I mean, like every little thing, it just felt like so much information, you know, and just so foreign and so foreign. Yeah. It's, I I remember being a fly shop once and looking at vices and being like, I don't know what, what are these things? (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. What's what are these coils? And what's the spinny – like, it just was, like, mind-blowing because you're like, this doesn't look like any normal thing that yeah. exists in the right. – That's awesome. Um, yeah, and then and then obviously all that starts to lead to fly tying. Yep, right? are you a fly tire? Tying, 
I am. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not anything special, but I do like, I, you know, especially nymphs. It's like you lose those things so easily. I'm not, yeah. I'm not spending three. <laughs> yeah. I'm not spending three bucks on a, on a nymph every time I do. I like, you know, I'll buy usually dries and, and yeah. big streamers. Cause those yeah. I tend to not lose. And I fish them so infrequently that it's not worth it to spend $70 to tie one of Kelly Gallup's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we, uh, streamers. we have a guy in our uh, group that uh, could not make it tonight. Um, but he ties articulated streamers that are unbelievable. We'll, we'll, we'll send you some. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll that. send you some. So. One thing um, that's awesome. One thing that I've also really enjoyed doing of late is especially once you hit summer is mousing. Like I'll go over, I'll go over to Farmington and, you know, I'll do a full day session. I'm talking like 6am arrival on the water till like 9pm it's dark. And then, you know, I fished my last sort of, um, a spinner of the night and then I clip it, you know, and then I grab my six weight and I grab a great mouse pattern that I got from like, uh, I forget where I got it. Um, trout something i don't know it's online they have these great mouse patterns but i'll throw a mouse pattern and like that is so much fun i mean it's is so it, spooky is it effective but have you caught it's very of, effective yeah. oh yeah i've heard I've there's some, some rivers like you know like up in the northeast they're like famous for like nighttime mouse fishing like middle of night yeah that's yeah. not something you really hear about here like we've thrown i've thrown mouse for bass here but bass will eat anything if you put it in the right and place eat in the middle of the day yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's yeah. like you know, it's cool, but it's not like the quintessential what you think of like nighttime mouse fishing. Middle of night, pitch yeah. Black. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean I caught a huge brown on a on a you know a twenty two inch brown on a on a mouse, and it's just so cool because you just it's all the tug, it's the tug and a massive splash. Yeah. Like you feel because you know it's a surface level it's it's a surface level streamer yeah. effectively, and so those fish will hit them really hard, and it's just really spooky. And like, you know, I, I, sometimes when I'm alone, I get a little freaked out. I'm like, all right, I'm going to roll in, you know, cause I'm like, is there a bear out here? I don't know what's going on, Yeah. but it's just like, it's, it, it's fun. It's fun to do. I've enjoyed doing that. Um, what's, and I've enjoyed like sort of focusing more on, on dry fly fishing lately, especially during the height of summer. What's your bucket list fish? I would love, well, so I'm hopefully going to get it next summer. I'm going to be heading up to Labrador. Okay. And targeting some some five to ten pound brookies yes. is my. Ooh, yeah. I've been I've been reading about that from from John, you know, Giratch's book, yep. you know, and his his dispatches from Labrador, and just been like, man, that because I you can't get those you can't get those fish down here. Nope. So you know, I can get a big brown, like I can I can catch a big brown, I can catch big rainbows. I've been standing in the Farmington when a a two foot plus rainbow like launches out of the water. I know that river has it in there. They do not have an eight pound brookie. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, that's something I've got. It's on my trip. I'm, I've turned 40 this year. It's like going to be my like 40th birthday gift um, next summer. But so that's like on my target. That's I mean, awesome. I'd also, you know, I, I'm not into salt really. Um, I, I start, well, I know. So I've got a trip to Cape Cod this summer. Oh, just, just wait, just wait. I know. So I took, I, I, we, we took a trip to Cape Cod last year, last summer, and we found this like beach and it's kind of secluded. And so not a lot of people were there, but turns out that this, this is a flat that is like really well known for, um, 
striper fishing uh, fly fishing yeah stripers yeah. Yeah. and so I, I saw guys and i was like i didn't bring a fly rod i didn't think of it but i'm like okay so this year we're going back and as long as i'm not busy on the film because it might be it, it might be um at the same time but if i'm not i plan to fish for some stripers well, and give it a go well but, i've seen uh i think you can pull this off i've seen uh, uh vigo mortensen aragorn mm-hmm. from lord of the rings i've seen yeah. clips of him in like full oh yeah attire yeah, yeah. No, like yeah. picking up his fly rod like offset and then going and like casting oh, in yeah. new zealand and then they're like <laughs> yeah. calling him he's like dropping his gear running back to film a scene so so, so i'll tell you a funny story that we didn't get to but I'll, it, it's a good story so basically um there are two funny stories. One, so we go scouting, right? And we're we're scouting rivers, and we're yeah, no, I mean we actually are. That's the, but when you're scouting the rivers, it's like people are in their waders, and we're walking around the river. And so I was trying to explain to everyone, this is what we're gonna do. And so I go out there, and I've got a fly rod that has a fly on it, and I'm nymphing, right? And literally, I step into the water. I'm like, so what's gonna happen is Sinclair is gonna be out in the river like this. And he's going to nymph it. This is what nymphing looks like. And I do it. And I, I hook immediately into a fish right in front of like all the entire crew. And people were all like, all right, this guy really knows what he's doing. <laughs> um, and so that was funny and cool at the same yeah. time. But then well, it's, the it's, other hard thing to, was, it's hard to recreate those moments too. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you don't get another chance no, to do that. No, no, no. Um, and, and then the other time was, so basically when I, when we were making the movie on my off days, on my weekends, um, I would sometimes go and fish to puce because I'm like, I'm here, you know, you pay to do it, but I had per diem. So I'm like, you know what? Like I'm here, I'm going to go down and fish and I can go fish for a couple hours, like whatever, you know? And so I, I purchased my spot, you know, my rod, and then I would go and fish and I, um, Depuse has a really great waterfall that's going right where you walk in. It's got this big flat lake, and then that spills into a waterfall. And the waterfall, Depuse is really shallow. It's not a nymphing river or a creek, you know. I mean, I guess you can, but it's like a foot deep at times. It's really more of a dry or a dry dropper scenario. Okay. But I, for some reason, was nymphing, and I don't remember why, but I was nymphing, Euro-nymphing, sort of at the, you know, I was casting in the base of the waterfall and letting the flies kind of come out. And there were just these little pockets. And I caught, I mean, some big browns out of that. I mean, like a good size 18 inch brown out of places where you were like, there's not going to be a fish in there. And I had a great morning, right? And then I had to go do something else. So anyway, the next day or a day later, we're, um, we're shooting on Depew's. And I were shooting all this morning scene, which I think is like the scene where they like arrive, you know, and the four of them are getting together and Brian's making fun of Sinquan and, and, you know, he introduces Lucy to them. And then, and then we're filming the lunch scene. Um, and we're planning to do all of our fishing montage after lunch, but I'm hearing over the radio that like, Urbani is having trouble catching fish and they don't have any fish yet. And it's like, they've been hammering the Creek all morning. And I'm like, so in my head, I'm going like, well, <laughs> I know where some fish are, right? <laughs> and uh, so literally, we wrap the scene, call lunch. I hop in my car. I'm skipping lunch, and I be, I, I, I book it over to the waterfall. And I grab my rod, and I get in there, and I proceed to catch no fish. Like, I'm like, whatever fish were in here, they are not there anymore. And the only fish I catch is this little dinker of a brown. 
I mean, like, and that Brown, without spoiling it, that Brown ends up appearing in the film. Yes. Uh, yeah. um, I'm like, okay. And yeah. so that. That is a great, so all that is a big, great moment. It, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Without giving and it so away. So all of the, yeah, so all of the great big fish were not caught by me. They were eventually caught by Joe and his sons. Um, but my contribution to the film was the little Dinker Brown. And of course, <laughs> you know, it's because I, I was like, oh, I'll go catch you some big fish. Let me just wait. And then, you know, the fish uh, clearly had other plans. But um, anyway, so that was like another funny story about, you know, just being on set and wearing waders and catching fish and then having to go call action or, or you know, shoot the rest of the film. Oh, that's cool. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh... But it's like, you know, I, I just think it's such a it's such a beautiful sport. And, and people ask me about it because they're like, what is – like why fly fishing? Why does it work? What, what is it about, you know, you have these veterans and they're on the water and, and I don't really understand it. And I said, well, because here's the thing, like most people think when they think of fishing, they think of spin fishing. They think you're in a, a, a lounge chair, you know, on the, sh on the side of a river or side of a lake and you huck out a, you know, a worm that's on a bobber and you let it sit there and you drink beer the rest of the day. Right. It's a very passive experience. Not to say that there aren't spin fishermen that are actually active and casting all this stuff, yeah. but people, people's perception of it is not necessarily that. Yeah. Um, and the way I describe it is that with, with, with spin fishing, you're, you're trying to get the fish to come to you, right? You're using metal, right? Spoons, like you're, you're, you're standing on the shore, right? Casting out and trying to get the fish to come to you, right? So the engagement is very different. When you are fly fishing, to do it right, you have to be present. You have to exist in the moment because otherwise you're not going to be able to do it. And not only that, but it also requires you to go to the fish. You have to be standing in the water. You have to come up with bait, so to speak, that mimics what they are actually eating, right, for the most part. Like you are, you know, you are um, having to deal with wind and currents and um, drift and all this stuff. And, and you have to exist within the natural environment in order to do it right. And all doing all of that requires you to only exist in the moment because you've got to be, you've got to, you're feeling the current push against your legs. You know, you're maintaining your stance. Uh, if you're, if you're dry fly casting, you've got to worry about how you're casting. You know, if you're nymphing, you got to worry about your drift with the dry fly. You may only have a drift that's six inches long, you know, and then you got to pick it up again. So there's no time to just like sit back with a cigar and like wait for the fish to, yeah. to take the bait. And so the act of doing that short circuits, the trauma loop that people get stuck in when they're, when they have nothing else to think about gonna, and nothing I'm else. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Um, in the movie, the doctor uh, points and, and says that uh, studies have shown that fly fishing, you know, helps uh, deal with yeah. trauma. Is that, is there like an actual study out there that. Uh, That's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that was us in the movie. Originally in the script, we were trying to be really cute about it about like, oh, like, maybe she can, like, uh, like, so we were trying to make it seem like she kind of had this novel idea about fly fishing and whatever, right? And then I was like, this isn't working, and, like, why are we hiding the ball? Like, why don't we just, like, let's just acknowledge that it exists in the real world. Yeah. And she could just say, studies and, and experiences shown that this is actually can be a tool. I don't know if there's an actual, you know, an actual, like, well 
yeah, scientific study, but it wouldn't surprise me there, if there was. I would be curious to see. I know our uh, local Project Healing Waters uh, chapter mm-hmm. in San Antonio, they work at Bamsey with amputees. And they actually mm. go to uh, they actually go to Bamsey and they do like fly tying and fly fishing with amputees to teach them how to use their prosthetics. And it's actually yeah. their nurses are signing off on their therapy like is that is an activity that is uh, you know that is beneficial to them. They're using how to use their hands, so on and so forth. Yeah. But I didn't know, and so I know it's being used. But I didn't know if there was like actually a study out there that that pointed to it, and that were you telling that story clicked in my mind that that moment was in the movie and was just curious. Yeah, no, I'm not sure if there's an actual study, but it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if there was. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, that that's why fly fishing has this kind of ability to help people that are experiencing this kind of like you know endless loop of, mm-hmm. of trauma. Um, and, and so that, that is what it is about fly fishing, right? It just requires, it requires you to be present. It requires you to escape to nature, right? And it requires, you know, a focus that is going to supersede anything else you're dealing with. Now, once you're off the water, that all may come back, but for a lot of guys, it's just the ability to, to just get in the way of that loop that can really be life-changing for them. And, um, you know, it's also one of the few things, it's also one of the few times in the world where, uh, you know, I always want to say like where you can hold a wild animal. It's not an animal. I get that. But like, you know, where you can hold a wild creature and touch it, yep. you know, and have it be alive and feel it, it's aliveness in your hand. And that's like, you know, in that moment, I haven't the heard film, that take before I'm going to chew on that for a little bit. Zach, have you thought about it like that before where it's one of the few, few times it might be the only where you can actually like. Uh, you know, other than going to like a zoo, which is like semi-fake, but where you can actually like, where well, you're, you're interacting with a wild animal, animal. that there is a, a sense of connecting with like as much nature as you can. I mean, yeah. you can go hiking, yeah. you can have interactions with with birds and and with different mammals and stuff, but like, you know, there is a sense of you kind of need to let it be, except for when it comes to fish, right? Like, yeah. you, you you really I mean, are fish interacting are with it. Yeah, you're holding yeah. a life in yeah. your hand. Yeah. And the feeling of that muscle and the movement, you know, I mean, that's kind of what Coulter's experiencing during the first time he catches that fish and he's holding it in the sand. You know, this kind of beautiful moment where he he is experiencing that. Um, you know, whereas, like, look, even if you hunt, your, your actual ability to interact with that animal is once it's dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's a it's one of the, I, it might be the only time that that's how I've always thought of it. It's like probably the only time where you can actually hold something yeah. that is wild. That's not, you know, I mean, listen, I've held a, I've nursed a chipmunk back to life. You know, I've, <laughs> I've helped a bird that slammed into my yeah. window. Yeah. Right. But like that, that, that may not happen that you can't go and just do that whenever yeah. you want. That's a perspective so, I haven't thought about before. I'm going to chew on that a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, I think that at the end of the day, we hope that people really just connect with this film and whether you're into fly fishing or you have an experience with the military, I don't think that's necessary, right? Like, I think that it's just a beautiful story about relationships and the people that come into our lives and the way they change our lives yeah. and the way that trauma can, you know, be overcome. Yeah, and I and I was even thinking about this, Zach and I uh, volunteer. I mean, the listeners know we mentioned it every podcast, Real Recovery uh, organization that uh, does takes men with cancer on free fly fishing retreats where they get uh, group counseling and they get to learn how to fly fish. 
And, you know, those guys have trauma, too, that, like, they would 100% get something out of this movie. Um, I think that I know that it's very military-based, and that is awesome because it 100% deserves to be, but... This is a well, you got to tell a story from yeah. some perspective, yeah, right? Absolutely. You got to pick something. Yeah, yeah. and but I, but I agree. Like it's one hundred percent, it's one hundred percent deserving of that. I mean, I know the great work Project Healing Waters does, and you mentioned another organization, um, we've Warriors in t- Quiet Waters. Yeah, and we've talked with, um, oh gosh, uh, we've interviewed another one, but I'm blanking on the name. Uh, right now, and um, but I, I really feel like anybody can go watch this movie. And the Wild Ops, Wild Ops, yeah. yep. And yeah. uh, anybody can watch this movie and gr- take a great lesson out of it and get something from it and walk away feeling, uh, feeling good and having learned something and uh, from the movie. So, yeah, one of the great one of the feedback, you know, the feedback we've gotten from a lot of people that have seen it have just been they've also really just appreciated sort of the pace. <laughs> they're like, it's a movie you can kind of just live in for a while, you know? And I like so many so, movies nowadays are like so fast paced. and Yeah. And you really took time, especially in the beginning and the end of the movie, you had some really long cuts or, and they're, you know, you do that because it, you're creating this drama and this sense of um, like being there and being with it and kind of feeling that anxiety mm-hmm. with it. But it, it, uh, I definitely noticed that, that you feel like you're a part of it, that you're, yep. you're, there weren't a lot of, scenes that were like back to back to back and all of a sudden we're the next scene and we're the next scene it was like i'm here i'm experiencing this and i you kind of take a moment to breathe with the people yeah well and that was really intentional i mean we um you know i'm i'm a filmmaker that i prefer the subjective lens you know i'm not a filmmaker that shoots kind of just like here's your two shot and then here's an over and here's an over you know it's not an objective way of filmmaking my entry into films is always subjective it's always about how am i using the camera using the edit using that music and all that stuff to support the subjective experience of the main character you know and so in this movie even though there's several characters Coulter is our main character yep and so the camera work, the way that we approached my, my director of photography and I, Eve Cohen, the way that we approached this was really about cementing, like locking the audience into his perspective. So like you mentioned the opening, the war scene, that's all shot as a single take. Yeah, in, in and the, the car with them. Yeah. And then when they get out yeah. of the car, it's another single yeah. take. Right. And originally we wanted to do it all as one, but we couldn't. Um, but it was really about just. Because look, if you're, I wanted the audience to be in that car, right? I wanted them to be in the firefight. And if you cut, when you cut, it creates, it, it relieves the tension of the experience of the event, right? Because you're reminded subconsciously that you're watching a film, that it will cut, right? If you don't cut, that tension just ramps and ramps and ramps and ramps because you're just like, you get lost in it. Your experience of it is the experience of how it would be in the real world. Yeah. Right. So we wanted to immediately put the audience into his shoes and to do it one in a cool stylistic way, which is as a single take, which is impressive to pull off if you can do it right. But two, from a character position, it feeds into exactly what that experience would be. The next thing you do is, is we, we go to Brian and it's a one, it was the one one time I, I decided to go against our rule, which was basically until our rule was until Coulter catches his first fish. The first half of the movie is not the world has not opened up to him. 
the exception we make to that is the intro to Montana with Brian, because I just felt like we got to give the audience something here. We got to give them a nice drone shot. You know, like we got to, we just came out of this massive firefight. Let's go to Brian. Brian's world or, you know, Ike's character's world is already there, right? It's already in this beautiful Montana. But then once we go back to Coulter, like, you know, once we're in that van with Coulter, you'll notice that our shots of Bozeman are from the inside of the van and half of the shot is blocked by the ceiling and the, and the, you know, the, the, the chair or the, the chair and yeah. you, you don't get a good view of it. Yeah. And most of the first half of the film is shot in close-ups and it's shot indoors and you don't get any wide shots and you have no more drone shots. The next time you see a drone shot is immediately after culture catches his first fish. You know, and I also know I mean, it's right I before, did... sorry, it's when he sees Yellowstone for the first time. And I... that is when the world opens up to him. Yeah. And I didn't like put all of that together, all of those shots and, and think about it in that way. But what I did notice was um after he catches his first fish is the first is the first time that you see a smile. No yeah. one had smiled the entire movie until he caught the fish. And then this immediate scene after when he gets in the car with, um, uh, Lucy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was the first smile. So I, I see what you're saying with like the world opening up to him, not just like, you know, like visually with what you're seeing, but like the other people around him opening up to him and right. expressing different emotions. And the reason we did that, was I wanted the audience's experience to mirror Coulter's, mm-hmm. right? I wanted them to feel like the intensity of that firefight and then like this tight claustrophobic, like I need a release. Why am I not getting a release with this guy? Like I need a release, right? Like, and it's not until he's ready to release that the audience gets their release in the, you know, the nice crane shot and like the drones yeah. and, and, and it, and it moves at a much different pace at that point because what I wanted to do was I wanted to treat the audience to the same experience that Coulter was going through. And so that's just sort of an example of sort of how I subjectively think about how am I taking the audience on this journey from a subjective point of view rather than just sort of a like, well, here's your wide shot, here's your action adventure, here's your you know sort of more specific objective filmmaking. That's awesome. And I think it works. We've had a lot of people just yeah. sort of – Again, their comment is like, oh, just you don't see movies pace like this anymore. It's just a, a beautiful story. It's a beautiful world to live in. It's like beautifully shot. Like, I just want to stay there, you know? And I'm like, that's a great compliment. Like, I think that we wanted to, again, it's, it's about a veteran, but it's not a war movie. There is war in it, but it is more about the aftermath and, and his experience of like transitioning into this new world. And what does that world look like, yeah. you know, and especially after coming out of like, you know, COVID and this globally traumatic event that that we are will be dealing with the repercussions of for, you know, a long time. It just felt right to give people a movie that was about just something nice, mm-hmm. you know, a nice story, a nice, good, clean, you know, positive story about connection and the people in our lives and nature, you know, and how all that can be you know, just, just contributive towards, towards a much better, better life. That's awesome, man. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, I, I told Zach before we got <laughs> going that I could talk to you for, for hours. hours and yeah. literally that is almost the case. Um, so I like to talk, so it's not yeah. surprising we've gotten this far. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Honestly, yeah, that, yeah we, we can't thank you enough for coming on and also letting, letting us, us see the, view the movie as well. Yeah. That, 
honestly, it, it it was an impactful movie, and like I have a lot of um, military people in my background, and also with anxiety and everything like that. It was just you guys, and that was nothing we never didn't get to talk about, but just the way you guys handled those scenes with um, anxiety attacks, it was uh, extremely well done, and you guys did a, a fantastic job g- giving that justice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, again, trying to how do you get something internal yeah. and and yeah. represent it visually is is a unique challenge. And uh, I'm excited to see it again in the theaters. Me too. Yeah, I know. I, know I saw. I know I already saw it, together. but like, I want to get a group together and go, and I, I go like be with them for their first time watching yeah. it. So yeah, no, it's a different experience yeah. for sure. I mean, yeah. to see it on a, a huge screen and especially the battle scene with that surround sound, like it's yeah. so great. I've seen it in the theater a couple times now, and it's it's a it's a really wonderful experience. All right, man. Well, we we can't thank you enough, and uh, we'll. Uh, We'll stay in touch, and then we'll, uh, you know, obviously this will come out before the movie. So, uh, we, you guys listening, we recorded this uh, probably two months ish before the movie came out, roughly. But um, we're excited for the movie to come out and for you guys to see it. So, can't wait. Look in the description below to find links to our website, online store, YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord server, and blog. Please send your podcast questions and inquiries to info at honeyholeangling.com. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you again next week.